You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome in to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, an amazing story of a former Marine who was the second African-American awarded the Navy Cross and the first since the 9-11, uh, post-9-11 War on Terror. Uh, just an incredible tale. We'll get to all the great things that he is doing coming up in just a few moments. But our first, our normal reminders, as always, about following us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Please continue to leave us Apple reviews, uh, help grow the show, help grow the Hazard Ground community. It doesn't have to be a long length review. Just give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. We'll continue to try and uh, post those on social media as they come in. But I certainly appreciate all the feedback and all the love that you guys give us each and every week. So thank you so much for that. As well, our promotion with Amazon continues. Uh, listen, I know we've made some updates to the website and some changes there, including the Sponsors tab is gone. I've been telling you guys to go to the Sponsors tab for the Amazon thing. Right now, the Amazon button is only at the bottom of the homepage. Go there, click to it, it'll redirect you to Amazon. Uh, please uh, do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. Again, just go to hazardground.com and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. And again, if you have been trying to contact us through the homepage and you haven't heard anything back, please try again. We had some spyware, whatever you call it, bots. Uh, you know, they were, they were attacking us, uh, and we fought back, and we have won through noted web security. But anyway, I joke around and I kid, but all things serious, if you've been trying to contact us and you haven't heard anything back from me, please go to the website, hit the contest contact us button, fill out all the forms, and I'll certainly get back to you guys. So we appreciate everybody uh, who has reached out to us, uh, and we will get back to you. Uh, and we love the guest suggestions, so please keep them coming. All right, this week's guest is a former Marine uh, who retired as an E-7 gunnery sergeant at 18 years of service before he was medically retired from the Marine Corps. He's got three combat deployments, all of them, to Iraq, uh, where, again, he was awarded the Navy Cross, the second ever African-American to receive the award in the first since Doris Miller of World War II. That was over 60 years ago. And the first African-American to receive the Navy Cross as part of the post-9-11 War on Terror. Uh, he was also injured in Iraq uh, on his second deployment. Currently serves as the Vice President of Programs alongside former NFL Hall of Famer LaDainian Tomlinson at the Tomlinson Center and there they establish high-production cultures and create elite citizens. Uh, they work with student-athletes and troubled youths. Just an amazing organization. Uh, and on his way to starting a nonprofit as well. And we welcome him in. He is Aubrey McDade joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Aubrey, welcome, man. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me, man. How's it going? Uh, it is great. Uh, I heard your story, and I fell in love with it immediately. Um, not only just because of you know, the noteworthiness of you being the second African-American to be bestowed the honor of being awarded the Navy Cross. But just, you know, your entire career is, is uh, it, it, it's kind of like, I hate to phrase it this way, but like, it's almost like they make movies about guys like you. Like you are, you, you, from the outside looking in, you always felt like the perfect Marine, you know, and you did all the things that Marines are supposed to do outside of being an outstanding leader. You got to be a drill sergeant as well. I mean, you kind of just, you seem to fit into the Marine Corps like a hand into a glove. I, I did, man. Uh, I just think my whole life was uh, was training for that. You know, I come from very humble beginnings and some of the worst zip codes in Fort Worth and Houston. And when I 
take my time to reflect and look back on all the things that I endured as a as a as a child and as a young adult before I listened to the Marine Corps, I just thought about it. I was like, wow, like that hardship at that time it sucked, but it prepared me to have the the mental and, and physical readiness for the Marine Corps. Do you think about your childhood and, and the, the impoverished neighborhoods, the crime-ridden neighborhoods that you lived in, um, and wonder had you not gotten to the Marine Corps if you would have like literally made it out alive? Man, I think about that all the time. So uh, I'm a father of 10. I got eight sons and two daughters. Oh, my and, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially you burnt, as you relates to squad. my son. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's what happened, man. You go to the, you go to deploy me, you go fight in combat, you come back home and you try to make it count before you got to go again. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, man, uh, I talk to my sons about it often. And um, I don't think that I would have made it out alive. I really do think that everything I experienced was a part of God's plan. And um, I just vividly remember, you know, um, if that recruiter doesn't come by. I remember when – he was actually um, recruiting me to go to the Marine Corps before he had come by. I was already thinking of how am I going to get some money? How am I going to be able to feed my little sister? Um, how am I going to help my mom with these bills? And it just kind of just popped up that way. So, so what, yeah, I don't think. How, how does the interaction start? I mean, were you just like out of options or it was just something that you saw on TV? Like, how does the Marine Corps get into your conscience? Oh, man. So, on my 18th birthday, uh, my best friend, Kelton Nelson, he's in the Air Force. Um, on my 18th birthday, we went to Six Flags, hung out with some girls. And um, later that night, we was getting ready to go to this party in Fort Worth. And early, maybe late afternoon, we just come back to Six Flags and we pull up at Town Center Mall. And I went to sleep in the back seat. I was just, you know, resting or whatever. I, I'm not a good rider. I would go to sleep on him in a minute. But uh, he wakes me up and he's like, man, what are we going to do with our life? And I'm thinking about, that's a weird question. We already said we're getting ready to go to a party. What are you talking about? He's like, man, you can't keep on, you know, being in the streets, doing what you're doing to try to get money. I wasn't selling drugs or anything like that, but I wasn't a saint either. Um, and he was like, I'm thinking about going to the Air Force. And in underserved communities, we don't really know much about the military. So for me, I was like, man, I'm not going to the Army. He's like, no, man, I'm not talking about the Army. I'm talking about the Air Force. I'm like, well, it's all the same to me. So long short of it, we go into the recruiting office, and I didn't get along with the Air Force recruiter that well. Uh, I just – I didn't like him at all. Um, but my brother, best friend, brother, he uh, took the ASVAB. I took the ASVAB. He scored really high, and it pissed me off more because I didn't do that well. So I was like, man – for one, I don't want to go to the Army. Then you go in there and have me take this test. Now I'm pissed off because I didn't do that well, and I don't like the Air Force recruiter. But um, long short of it, life slowed down, man. He left, I think, um, early September, no, late September, maybe early October. He left, and life just slowed down for me. And I started thinking about – I actually started paying a little bit more attention to the Marine Corps commercials, you know, specifically the one where the guy fights the – the lava monster yeah. over the bridge. I remember. <laughs> so I remember that. And just for the sake of the story, I was actually going to uh, one of the neighborhood stores in, in, in my neighborhood at the time. And as I was going to the store, this police officer rose up on me. He's like, what's up, Black? I'm like, man, you don't know me. He's okay, Aubrey Leon McDade Jr. And he drives off. Scares the crap out of me. 
So I run back to, at the time, I moved, I moved up my parents' house when I was like 15, almost 16 years old. I just felt like, you know, if, if this is what I got to experience, I can do bad, I can do bad by myself. You know, my parents were, uh, crack addicted at the time. Um, so I moved out and I, he and I lived together and, but this time I moved out, I was living with my uh, girlfriend at the time. She was five, six years older than me. So I was staying with her. So I run back to her apartment. I asked her, you know, had the police been by? She like, no. And went to my mom's old apartment and she's like, no, the police hadn't been by. And then just for, I guess, maybe two weeks, give or take, Gunner Song Lee, Marine Corps recruiter comes by and, um, he pulls up in his red Durango and I'm seeing him and I'm like, yeah, nobody around here drives a vehicle like that. So it was just he and I, it was maybe eight o'clock in the morning. I was sitting on the porch, had like a, a, a shirt on and some basketball shorts and he gets out and I'm like, Hey man, who are you looking for? He's I'm looking for Arvin McDay. And nobody lives around here with that name. And, uh, he's okay. Well, can I give you my car? He gave me the car again, scared the crap out of me. So I go back in the house. Hey, has the police been by here? She's like, no. I said, what, what is this? Like, why is he coming by dropping off? cars? that's not the police. That's the military. Either way, uh, one particular time, I was actually leaving my mom's house. Gunner Sean Lee had come back to the projects where we lived at. And as I was coming out, he was getting ready to knock on the door. And he was like, hey, man, I know you. Like, you don't know me. And I'm trying to get in the car and leave. Um, unfortunately, at the time, I had this uh, 88 Buick Skylark that would never start on the first crank. And so as I'm trying to step on the gas pedal to get it started, you know, he's at the at my mom's house having a conversation with her about whatever they were talking about. So, Arbor Jr., get your ass back over here. Yes, ma'am. So I get out and go back over there. I said, man, what's up? What do you want to talk about? He said, okay, I see what this is. He said, man, I won't hold, I won't take too much of your time. And my sister and I, uh, she and I are five and a half years apart. And she was hugging me around my waist while the gunner saw was talking to me. And he just told me, he said, man, uh, I believe you deserve better than this. And I believe that the young lady hugged you around your waist deserves better than this. So, um, if you feel like this with your life, if this, if this, if this is what your life is going to amount to, then don't come see me. He said, but if you feel like you deserve better and she deserves better, you got my car, make your way downtown and come see me. And I went downtown, the conversation was really simple. At the time, I knocked out 18 pull-ups and did the running stuff and did the crunches and everything. And um, he's like, man, you want to change your life? This is the way to do it. You got to pass the ass back. So I passed the ASVAB. I scored a 35. And it takes, I think it takes a 32 to get into the Marine Corps. So the good news was was that I passed. And the bad news was that they didn't have a job for me. So I had to go in and open contract. He's like, it's like a crapshoot. Like, well, yeah, I like to shoot craps. I'm a 10 4 shooter. We can do it that way. <laughs> so I went in, and the Marine Corps saw fit to make me a machine gun. And the, the, the rest of his history, uh, I remember that moment I was in um, Count Pendleton, SOI. I remember we were standing in front of our barracks and giving us our MOSs and our assignments. And as he said, Private McDay, OP31. I'm like, man, what the fuck is that? I look around and all the guys are like, man. So there's a big, a really steep hill in, um, in, uh, in Camp Pendleton called Mount Motherfucker or Steep Shit. And they was, <laughs> these, these Marines were struggling on Mount Motherfucker with 50 cal machine guns and they was just, stretched all apart like they were hurting so like yep that's gonna be your life and at that moment i had to i had a moment of reality and i had to do a reality check man you're gonna make this thing work or you're gonna go back to fort worth 
And I was like, no, I'm not going back to Fort Worth. So I just made my mind up, hey, I'm going to make this work. So. That's incredible. Um, <laughs> wow. So, I mean, you had a very persistent recruiter. Um, you're, you're not in the Marine Corps probably without him accosting you once, twice, right. three times. You might have gone yeah. down a different road. Did you ever cross paths with him again before your career was over? I have I think I think the fact that I gave him I, I wouldn't say it was a real hard time, but I think the fact that I challenged him a little bit, once he got me in and I passed that mark, I haven't heard from this guy since. I didn't get a letter in boot camp. <laughs> he didn't send me a care package. He like, man, yeah, you, you belong to the Marine Corps. Yeah, but now. like I mean, did you ever think about like trying to find it? Like, I mean, he changed your life, right? Like it, yeah. Again, like if he, he doesn't, if he doesn't do the things that recruiters do, which is be annoying and persistent and help you make decisions you're not 100 percent sure you should make. Um, and I say that in jest about our recruiters; they're they're all you know good people just trying to do a job. Yeah. But again, there there are stories like yours that's like, well, you know, look at your life now, and you're not you're not there without it because again, you talked about it. you could be down on a completely different road. You might be you might not yeah. even be here right now. I, and that's that's pretty amazing. Uh, I, I'd like to find. Staff Sergeant Lee, you said it was? Or Gunnery Sergeant? It was a Gunnery Sergeant Lee. I don't remember his first name, but um, I know this guy was ginormous. He was at least about 6'2", in pretty good shape. Um, yeah, I just remember Gunnery Sergeant Lee. I don't, I don't remember his first name. Was there any reservations for you about leaving your mom, your sister? I know you talked about worrying about them and caring about them and going to do this and just going away from them and anything that could happen. Were you, were you scared about leaving them? I have reservations, man, because, I mean, the, the the hood is unpredictable. You know, it's there's always something happening, especially when, you know, your family is a part of that life as well. Yep. I have my reservations, but my head, heart, and stomach was on the same page. I knew that I had to go. So when I left, I didn't even tell anybody that I left. So the way I left was um, I passed ASVAP, and I was supposed to leave February of 2000. And uh, Gernson Lee calls me early November and says, well, hey, man, um, one of my one of my recruits dropped out. I need somebody to ship early. And I was like, well, I'm glad you called. I need somebody to pay this light bill. He said, light bill? I'm like, yes, sir, $382. You give me $382 to pay this light bill, I'll leave whenever you want me to leave. And at the time he called me, I had my spark plug and my screwdriver in my hand. I was going to steal a car radio or something. And um, he's like, $382. I'm like, yes, sir. He come by, cash money, 382 bucks, going, hey, mom, hey, pay the light bill. She's like, thank you, baby. Where you get this money from? They don't worry about it. I'll see you later. And next time my mom heard from me, I was on the phone at MCRD San Diego. Hey, mom, I robbed MCRD San Diego, safe and sound, yada, 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 all that stuff. And she was getting pissed off because I wouldn't let her talk. I'm like, look, you can't talk. I'm going to get in trouble. Then they came and hung the phone up and all hell broke loose. Uh, where'd you get that money? Don't worry about it. I'll see you later. Like literally later, yeah. like much, much later. Right. <laughs> That's incredible. That's awesome. Um, I, you know, I don't want to derail this cause I, I, I want, but I do want to ask about the relationship with your mom real quick and, and where is it now? And, you know, uh, I mean, you, you seem to have this, this tough sort of relationship where, you know, obviously you care for your mother and everything. And, and again, I don't have no background on this, so I'm just spitballing here. So forgive me, right. but you know, um, also your mom is living a life that is not conducive to you living a, a, a good life, right? Like you said, you're yeah. in bad conditions, but you said mom was addicted to crack and she's not making it better. So right. but yet you're still paying the, the electric bill. You're still keeping the lights on for her. So, uh, you know, uh, 
Does she ever get mad at you down the road for not telling her? I mean, like, where are you guys now? I'm just sort of curious. Man, I love my mama, though. Like, my mama, it it doesn't matter the things that she and I have been through together. You know, I I believe I'm her first real man. You know, I had my biological father. He was killed by the police when I was 11 years old behind some drugs as well. Um, But... That that love that that a, a young man can have for a mom, I just think mine is unmatched. And for me, I mean, it's real simple for me. Other people may not see it this way, but she could have made a different choice. You know, she could have went to the clinic. She could have did something else instead of deciding to, you know, have me a, as her son. Right. And all the stuff that we went through, you know, uh, I just felt this this sense of responsibility and obligation. Like that's my mom. I don't really give a damn what she got going on. It's not personal for me. I think it's, I think she's just sick. So while she's sick, I'm going to hold it down for my little brother and my little sister. And I think all the things that I had to take responsibility for shaped and molded me to be able to be the Marine that I am. So now today, our relationship is great. You know, she was, she was pissed off when I came back and I get like a little smack on the face. My late mama had to make this change so I can get us up out of here. So it's, it was, Shortly, it's good. Is she more proud of you or are you more proud of her? I'm more proud of her. Yeah, I'm more proud of her. And it's funny, well, not really funny, but it's it's ironic that when I go to the Marine Corps, she gives up the drug by herself. She doesn't go to rehab. Wow. None of that. She just quits. Look at that. That gave me chills, yeah. bro. That was that's yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Well, congrats to your mother. Congrats to you. That's uh, that's incredible. That, Thank I, you. I, you know, listen, it's those little parts of our stories that we don't really focus on, right? Like when we just yeah. there's that extra sort of tangential thing going on in our military lives that's always with us and always there. That's pushing us, motivating us, driving us, whatever it may be. Um, that you know uh, is such a, an integral part of who we are in our story, and I, I think that's great. So I'm, I'm glad that you, you shared that with me. Thank you. All right, so uh, you signed up. You're 2000, right? You're good. Life is peachy in the Marines. Um, you know, you, you get sent to what, what's your first assignment? You're at one uh, eight, right? Yeah, man. Um, so I think I came in at the perfect time because I came in November '99, so I was able to see what my Marines, my senior enlisted, considered to be the old core. Right. Then we transitioned to the the, the digital cami, so I was able to be a part of all these transitions. Yeah, my first duty station was Bravo Company 1A. And I had reservations about going there at first because when they were giving us, when they were calling out the names to give us our duty stations, my name was called for Hawaii. So I was excited. Ah. Then uh, my sergeant instructor at the time, he just misread. It was a McClendon in front of McDade. So it was MCC, then MCD. I was like, so went to Bravo Company 1A and Day one until my last day, it was it was awesome. You know, we land in. Um, Sergeant Smith at the time was giving us our, I guess, introductory welcome aboard, whatever you call it. And he's just pretty much telling us about how, you know, Bravo Company 1-8, we got the standard, we're the best machine gun section in the battalion, all this other stuff. And if you have any issues, let us know. You got a problem with me and my NCOs, we can handle it. I look around, it didn't alarm anybody else, but for me, it did. So, like, Sergeant Smith with us, we can handle it, me. So, you want to find that boot? No, sorry, I'm good. And that was, <laughs> welcome, 
Welcome to one eight. <laughs> good decision. Yeah. Good decision at that point in time. Uh, so life is peachy. You're having fun, but then nine eleven happens. Uh, where are you? Um, you know, and and what's going on around you? And did you think like, oh boy, uh, this might have been a bad decision? Man, I was in. So I had torn to some ligaments in my ankle. We, my first deployment was in Europe, and we were just having a good time, and then. Off the coast of Africa, we were doing a hike and fell down the slope of this hill and tore some uh, ligaments in my ankle. So I was on light duty for a little bit. Um, and 9-11, I had this new gunner sergeant come in, Gus Ruiz. He came in, and he was the weapons platoon, platoon sergeant at the time. And uh, I'm sorry, he was a company gunner sergeant at the time. And since I was on light duty and I was an NCO, they, he made me his radio operator. And everybody was giving him all these kudos about me. Hey, man, Day Day, he had a good piece of gear. He won the best machine guns, gave him all this stuff. And I was a corporal, E4. He was like, eh, it's something that this, it's something that he doesn't know. So long shut up, we was in the field doing 9-11, and he had me call in something over the radio. And I forget what it was for the life of me. But I do know that over the radio, for the phonetic alphabet I, I said igloo. I didn't say Indian. I said Igloo. And he went freaking berserk. Igloo! Igloo! We got the freaking Eskimos! So hazing me up in the, hazing me in the tree line. So I got pine needles and all in my head and my ears and everything. And then he hear what happens, uh, 9-11 come over the radio. And he stopped. Man, to my ignorance, man, I didn't know anything about the Twin Towers. I didn't know what that was. Um, I heard that a plane that flew into these buildings but they had explained it all to me at the time. I didn't know. Um, and I was in shock. I was like, man, so what does that mean? And they mean, like, eventually we're going to war. It's going to happen. So in my mind, I, I couldn't really grasp it. Couldn't really understand it. Um, I just knew that the things we're training to do is what we're going to have to do in real life one of these days. But I didn't know it was going to come that soon. All right. Yeah. So, um, between that point in time and you don't end up deploying until 2003 to Iraq, obviously when the, when the war kicks off, but you're there at the very beginning of the war. Is that correct? Yes, sir. All right. Yep. So uh, give me kind of the, the, the breakdown. When do you find out that you're going to Iraq? What do, what are you told your mission is? Uh, what is your understanding of everything that's going on? Well, we had a, we had a, uh, we had a pretty badass battalion, bro. And so we knew, we already knew that we had a battalion commander that was going to try to make sure that he, he get us there. We knew that already. Um, so, my understanding, you know, they simultaneously they were taking down Baghdad. That was like the, the biggest part of everything when it first started happening, to, to my knowledge, from what I remember anyway. Uh, taking down Baghdad. And I think um, our part of the strategy was securing Mosul, Iraq. I think they had like a pretty large airfield there or something yep. like that. Yep. Um, so we secured that. But that was just a combat deployment. We didn't really have like highly kinetic fights in Mosul. You know, we had our mission and we did what we had to do. Um, and we got a combat action ribbon because rounds were exchanged between us and, um, some Iraqi, Iraqis. But, um, that was give or take about 30 days. Give or take about 30 days. And we went there from, we actually flew there. He, he loaded in from the ship. Um, I think we was on the, uh, the Nashville at that time. USS, USS Nashville at the time. Right. Okay. So, are you, how long are you actually in Mosul for? Because I, I know 
correct me if I'm wrong here, when you're on ships, it's like you get off and then you go back and you get off right. and you go back. It's not like a regular standard, you know, um, you know, Marine deployment where you're on the boots on ground for six, seven months straight. Right. Yeah, no, it wasn't that. We was only in, in, in Mosul for about 30 days. Okay, so yeah, but Mosul, So you weren't part of the invasion, correct? Uh, no, sir. Right, okay. No. So Mo, that's what I was looking at because I'm just trying to understand, you know, again, it, it took a couple of weeks to get up to Baghdad, and then, you know, obviously they keep pushing north once they got Baghdad secured, but that was, yeah. I think, a month or two later uh, when it was yeah. all said and done. So what 30 days was this? When do you actually get in Mosul? Do you remember what month it was of 2003? Um, I think it was May. Okay. Yeah. I think it was even April, May, 2003. Yeah. And at that point in time, Mosul, like nothing's really going on, right? Like you're not saying. Yeah, it was nothing really going on. And, you know, we get there and we got to secure the airfield and all that thing. Um, and I think it was just more of, um, pissed off locals versus like actual, actual enemy combatants. Right. Right. Uh, so when this is all done, do you feel like you've been in combat? I mean, uh, I I use my weapon against a, a human target, um, but I don't feel like it was combat. Not 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 what we understand combat to right, be, sure. especially with all the training and stuff that we do. Yeah, I don't. I didn't believe it was combat. Is there a part of you that after you have to use your weapon for the first time begins? To, do, do you feel like things are different? Do you feel like you're different from doing it? I mean, what was your approach to the whole thing? We we trained so hard, man. Uh, that I think in a way it desensitizes you to right. to what it is that you're actually doing. Because uh, we had this thing where we uh, we fight hard, but we train harder. So um, for me, I thought about it, but it was nothing that that you know got me off track or anything like that. Uh, I didn't think anything different about myself. It was just. You know, we had the job to do, and I'm gonna make sure that people to the left and the right of me come home. So, right. Um, and I only ask all that because obviously, you know, combat takes on a whole different form after your your second deployment, which is um, the battle, the second battle, Fallujah Operation Phantom Fury. Now, um, talk to me about the lead up a little bit of this whole thing. Like, you know, again, it was this was May of '03. You were there. The battle, second battle, Fallujah until the end of 2004. So. Um, what point in time in between do you find out you guys are heading back to Iraq and, and when do you get there? Uh, we knew we were heading back uh, when we touched down back in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, now I didn't know that we was actually going to Fallujah. I mean, I didn't even know Fallujah was a thing then. Um, so we get back October, 2000, October, 2003. So that first deployment was my son was back. My first biological son was actually born. Uh, March 5th, 2003, we went to the deployment to Mosul, come back October 2003, we do our uh, post-deployment leave to go visit our loved ones and take a break, and we immediately get back into training. Um, my company had did a cold weather package in um, uh, Bridgeport, California, and then they did a, a, a package in Norway, uh, then they came back, and while they were gone, I still hadn't addressed the issues in my ankle, and I was supposed to get out of the Marine Corps. So they're like, hey, McDade, you're getting out? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get out. So I stayed in the real party. But I was still helping around a battalion. I, I, I had uh, went to become a police sergeant, so I managed the barracks and all that stuff where everyone was gone. And I would go pick the Marines up, Camp Geiger and everything, the newly graduated um, infantrymen from Camp Geiger. And as I picked them up, I was thinking about it. I was like, 
So if our company's in Bridgeport, Norway, they don't come back until February, March. We deploy June. So we're going to be off for the most part of May. These guys are not going to have any time to do any training, no field ops or anything. So when they come back, when I pick them up, you know, I take them through this hasty package that I make up with machine guns and field ops inside of the quad and just try to do whatever I can do with the Marines that I've left behind to help train the new Marines. And it didn't sit right with me. It didn't sit right with me. Um, so I went to our battalion, our battalion doc, um, Dr. Kong at the time. And I'm not even sure if he remembers this, but I went over there and I told him, I said, sir, I need you to clear me to deploy. And he was like, days you got to have some surgery on your ankle like you got ligaments hanging in your ankle like a shoestring it's unstable how do you know you want to go over there and become a liability i just sir i, I won't be a liability. i've been training my entire enlistment with this ankle being as it is um i'll be fine i need you to clear me to go on this deployment and he made me pray with him he said i'll clear you if you pray with me and I prayed with him. I think he was getting orders to go somewhere else. Um, but Did I that seem strange to you, by the way? Say again? Did that seem strange to you that he wanted you to pray? Oh, uh, no. Uh, so I was blessed to have my my big mama. She's like my great-grandma. I was blessed to have her to be 101 years old. She passed away in 2000, my first year in the Marine Corps. And all the things that she talked about God and her faith and her religion – when I when I heard it coming from him, I just took it as one of those things that, okay, this is a part of the equation. This is this is what I need in order to be able to go on this deployment. And I respected him a lot. He always took care of me when he was there. Um, yeah, we did that, and he signed up on medical record, and I went running to my company. I mean, my company commander and my platoon commander uh, at the time, Captain Noble and Staff Sergeant Brown at the time, uh, told him, "Hey, yeah, I'm gonna deploy." And the man don't be fucking with us. You going? Like, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And uh, so he welcomed me back into the platoon. And at that time, my my machine gun section was attached to first platoon. And we was doing a uh, a vehicle checkpoint and entry control point at the Area 2 basketball court on, on Camp Lejeune. Just kind of still training until we get ready to deploy. And uh, I told him, I said, man, we got to continue to train even when we get in country because these young guys haven't even had any any field ops. I think the, the biggest thing for me was at the time, I think I'm 24, maybe 25. And we have guys that are 18, 19 years old. That all they know is butter, butter jam, butter, butter jam, machine gun qualification on paper targets. They hadn't done any contact lefts, contact rights, anything. So um, we deploy. We deploy June 22nd. 2004. Okay. We're flying them, fly to Al-Assad and all that whole thing to get acclimated. Yep. And then the rest of it was op-tempo. And the op-tempo for Fallujah at that point in time was off the charts. Uh, yeah, it was. And it wasn't even a Fallujah thing first. Um, our biggest issues, our biggest conflicts that we were experiencing was Haditha Dam, mm-hmm. um, um, Ramadi, yep. stuff like that. So we did a lot of um, security patrols and posted up at Haditha Dam for a while and did some patrols out of there. And then, you know, we landed, we ended up 
being at uh, Ammo Supply Point, ASP Wolf, and we was over there just making sure that people couldn't come in and get, you know, trap and stuff like scrap metal and stuff like that to try to build bombs or nothing like that. Um, we actually get to Camp Fallujah late September, early October. And that's when it became real for me because yeah. we would hear artillery and stuff shaping Fallujah every day. Sometimes we even get some incoming mortar rounds from the city of Fallujah from the enemy combatants. I mean, just for the scope, uh, for those who aren't 100% clear on the the second battle of Fallujah, um, you know, you had, by certain estimates, a couple of thousand insurgents there from every, right. virtually every insurgent group out there, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, Islamic Army of Iraq, Al-Sunnah, um, you had the Mujahideen, you had the Fedayeen from Saddam's regime there. Um, I mean, it was, you know, chaos from start to yeah, finish. Was, yeah, there was even um, um, Syrians that traveled mm-hmm. to come and be a part. There was people from all different parts of different countries coming to be a part of this fight. It so, was like... So what's the op temple like leading up to the beginning of November when the battle starts? I mean, like... You know, you, you have this small amount of contact, you know, these sort of pop shot things you're dealing with in Mosul. Did, when did it really dawn on you in Fallujah, like, oh, this is way different than what I saw before? In Fallujah? Yeah. So leading up to Fallujah, I, we just, my platoon commander and, and, and my platoon sergeant, they, they were relentless with training. Um, the Marines were too. But just the innovativeness that we took, the innovative approach that we took, the training to try to make sure we leave no stone unturned, you know, dot our I's across our T's. Uh, we were training to operate off of minimum sleep, of minimum chow, um, how we're going to move through the city, with what kind of weight we're going to move through. Um, and every day was a one o'clock in the morning, hit the rack, probably five o'clock in the morning, get up and go on patrol or whatever the case may be. So we're actually getting ready. We're actually stationed outside of the the train station, wait for, you know, go time. And the whole time we're there, I'm hoping that it's a training demolition. I'm hoping that it's like some intense training. I'm hoping it's not real combat. Um, my Marines and I actually had had to have a conversation about it before we left because you know how we get motivated we're going to go, you know, do this, do that, whatever the case may be. And I didn't want to hear it. And I told him, so may he rest in peace, Corporal Anderson. And I, he pulled me aside one one night. We was having a conversation. And he was like, why you don't want us to to be motivated about what's about to happen? I said, man, because we all, we all are God's children. And we aren't going to be the only ones that's taking life. Some of us are going to not going to come back. Sure. I don't think that people are thinking about that. You don't celebrate taking a life of anybody. We're going to go ahead and do our job and be the best version of ourselves that we can be, but celebrating taking life is not going to happen. We're not going to do that. There's nothing, there's nothing cool or amazing about what we're about to do. And when it gets real, you'll understand. And um, we entered the city and it was the most surreal thing ever because I didn't understand it. I didn't understand. Like we were, we had shaped the city. We had buildings blowing up. We had gunshots and stuff going off. But then we also had psyops 
riding through the city playing Let the Bodies Hit the Floor. And I was like, what's happening? Right? <laughs> I'm talking about I just pump it, bro. Let the bodies hit the floor. And I'm like, what is going on right now? And I just couldn't, couldn't take it all in. So I just snapped out of, hey, man, just keep it moving. Keep it moving. So. Was, was there any time prior to November 11th of 04 um, – that and that was the the night or the day of the night that you were uh, your actions, uh, you know, got you awarded the Navy Cross. But was there any night before then that you thought, "Hey, I'm I'm going to die here"? Uh, I never thought about dying there, but I did accept that before I deployed. Well, yeah, um, I yeah I accepted it. I talked yeah, to my wife at the time about it, but um, after that, once we have the conversation. It's just it's just game time. I think when you have when you allow yourself to to think about stuff like that, it, it takes away from your second nature reaction. You have to clear the mechanism, right? Like, right. I, I think I did the same thing um, where you know prior to my deployments, I, I would just basically succumb to the fact that there's a better chance than not that I that, that this is the end, and you just right. have to kind of swim in that for a little bit and, and embrace it. And accept it as reality. Um, now, there are times throughout my deployment I kind of needed to remind myself, like, "Hey, I'm really scared." You know, like I need to, I need, I need to just figure out a way to, to clear all this out of my head, and so I can do the job that I'm focused and trained on doing. Um, because I think if you don't, those those moments of fear and hesitation not only put yourself in danger, but could put your 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 comrades, your brothers and sisters in danger. And that's that's the other part of it that that really changes things. Um, all right, so let's get to uh, November 11th, 2004. Um, do you remember exactly where you were within Fallujah and what was going on, like what you were supposed to be doing that day? Can you give me the background? I don't remember exactly where we were at. Uh, but I do know that we were moving to phase line grace, but that's just something in terms of our battalion sure. as far as our markings and stuff as far as uh, checkpoints. Um, but we were leaving the uh, bath party house. And we were um, on a patrol to our next checkpoint, and it was as we was it was give or take maybe patrol on foot. That is though, right? Patrol on foot, right? Okay. Patrol on foot. So my company did all of our patrols on foot. We we the only company that went from or the battalion should I say they went from the top of the city to the bottom and back up on foot. Every now and again, we might get a a, a ride from from. Um, uh, from tracks or something, but it was nothing like that. We was always on feet, always on foot. But uh, we were moving to um, our checkpoint at Phase Line Grace. I'm sorry, I said Bath Point. It wasn't Bath Point House. That was in Missoula. Um, I forget the name of this place that we were at at Fallujah, where we lost. Uh, we had lost our first casualties of the war, and um, so now it's real heavy. You know, at first we, right. you know, we're taking down some people with. Levels and buildings, uh, but now we lost, you know, um, Jimenez. And we had uh, Sergeant Wells and Garson Shane got hit. And so now it's real follows, and we're actually under the cover of darkness. We're taking out patrol to get our second checkpoint. And as we were moving, I hear over the radio, PRR radio, which is I don't know what it stands for, but it's a crap line of sight radio, and. So I can hear what was happening, but they couldn't hear me responding. And I, I was able to hear Anderson and our platoon commander at the time 
talking about Iraqi special forces are up ahead. Now, mind you, before we even deploy out of the country to come to Iraq, our rules of engagement were, you know, see the enemy, shoot the kill. And Iraqi special forces wasn't supposed to be in our area of operation. They're supposed to be chaperoned by the army. So if you see them in your area of operation, deem them as a threat and engage. I hear Anderson and my platoon commander over the radio talking about Iraqi special forces ahead. And I'm screaming to the top of my lungs at the back of this patrol, open fire, open fire. And no one can hear me. So, uh, my second in command at the time, Justin Rose, I gave him the machine gun section. He pointed the machine guns, avenues of approach and all that stuff. And I took off running to the front of this formation of this patrol. And man, I felt like I was running in slow motion. I'm a pretty fast dude. I'm like, why am I running so slow? And, um, so I'm still trying to run fast and I just feel like everything just slowed down. By the time I get up there, um, Chaos had already broken loose. They had already opened up in the alleyway. Um, and we found that they had 50 cal machine guns just like us. I think they even had some RPKs, maybe RPGs as well. And by the time I got up there, Anderson was already hit and we had two other Marines hit and Staff Sergeant Brown had, um, already established the CCP, what I would call them at the time. And. I just remember getting up there, hey, Staff Sergeant, what's going on? He said, man, I, we got three hit. I think Anderson is dead. And I was like, oh, he, he told me, he said, um, we don't have close air support. We'll have tank support for like 45 minutes. I was like, I'll go get them. Just don't let me die. He said, brother, don't get hit because we don't have any tank support or anything. Like, I asked Staff Sergeant. So my mind, it just made sense. If these guys got hit with all these freaking happy plates and all this gear stuff we're carrying, then I'm just going to rely on speed and this black skin, hopefully I don't get hit. And I took all the crap <laughs> off and uh, dropped down and did about 10, 20 push-ups. That's my nervous thing, bro. Like, if I make a mistake or if I'm nervous, I drop down and do some push-ups, whatever, just kind of reset my mind. But I did that, and I ran across this alleyway. Did he look at you when that, you were doing push-ups going, what the hell are you doing? Well, no, I think he was in there. Oh, okay. With the core, man, just kind of get everything. <laughs> I was kind of in this, in this little quad gotcha. spot by all myself. Right, gotcha. Um, and I took off and the first Marine I encountered was, uh, Lance Corporal Kelly at the time, Robert Kelly, uh, may he rest in peace. He later deployed, he later went to become a, an officer and he deployed and took his Marines to Afghanistan. I think he was killed in Afghanistan. Um, but I landed on him and just kind of laid on top of him and he told me where the Marines and stuff were at. And I jump up and I run and I just jump over this Court and I landed on the cashier Marines. And I don't know who all the Marines were at the time. And no disrespect to none of them, because I love everyone, but I really was looking for Anderson. Anderson was the guy that I had a personal hand in training. Even though he wasn't in my platoon, that guy came into the battalion. He was just this small guy with the soul of a six-fold person. He was just that Marine. Didn't complain, didn't get in trouble, hardworking, PT stud. He's just that guy. Um, but I landed on top of um, Lance Corporal Russell, and he was hit, I want to say, in his left leg. And the left leg was hanging by a piece of flesh, I would say probably about as big as your wrist, and strip all his gear stuff off. And at the time, 
the enemy is still attacking the other side of this porch with whatever ammunition that they're shooting at us with. And I don't know how we're going to get out of there. But one of my machine guns open up, I get, and they get accurate fire on the enemy because I know my, I know my machine gun. So that gave us a break in the fire. I was able to pick him up. And as I run across the alleyway with him, the enemy starts engaging us again. And I remember running and I remember just hearing my thoughts of, wow, they're bracketing us because rounds will hit maybe five or six feet in front of me, a burst of ammunition and then burst of ammunition, you know, maybe five or six feet behind me. And it was getting closer and closer. And as, as it got closer, I remember thinking like, damn, they got me. And I fall into a pothole. I fall into a pothole. And uh, Russell and I both lay on the ground. I remember looking up and seeing bullets hit right in front of Russell, skip past him, and bounce right past him. And the same thing happened to me as well. So I pop up really fast, and I got him in like this, you know, just baby carry position, if you will. I get him to the casualty collection point. And our, our corpsmen at the time, they, they do some miracle work. They were 18, 19 years old at best, and they may have had a tactical pause as far as processing everything that happened, but they immediately got to it, and they did a great job. I was I was actually able to see Russell when I was when I retired in two thousand um, two thousand eighteen in January. He came to my retirement. He still has his his natural leg and everything. Okay, no I was just going to ask you: Did they save his leg? And they did. Yeah, okay. They saved his leg. Yeah. Wow. So I come out of the casualty collection point, and this time. I know that the enemy has night vision capability. Obviously, you see the blessings in the dark skin. And it was after midnight around this time. So I try to low crawl and stay tight to the bulkhead. I'm low crawling. I don't understand where I'm going. I know that Kelly pointed directions to me, but I wasn't really clear as to where they are. So I'm just following. I'm going to say I'm just following. I'm just going to follow. I'm following the God inside of me. And I'm low crawling, my head on the ground, and I reach to this porch and I'm able to touch this porch and I know it's a porch. I jump over the porch and I accidentally land on top of uh Lance Corporal Dominic. Dominic is this uh Dominican cat from Florida, uh little bitty guy. Again, just like Anderson, um hard as wood pick lips, man. And uh so got him, stripped all his gear off and he was arguing about it. I'm not leaving my weapon, Sergeant I'm leaving my, I'm not leaving my weapon. Get your freaking weapon, let's go. So I got him on my shoulder, take him back to the casualty collection point. And uh, again, our equipment, they get to work. So I won't lead you to believe that I was doing all that stuff for 45 minutes. I just really believe that maybe the tank, the tank team that we had was just motivated and just wanted to, they aborted where they was at and came to where we were. Um, I don't know exactly how long I was doing the running and all that stuff, but finally tank support shows up. And now wait, wait on did, the back, did you find Anderson yet or no? No, I only got two. And Anderson is the third one. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So you haven't found him yet. Okay. No, I haven't found him. Yet. No. Are you worried? So, are, you, are you like I need to go back and get him? Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm doing. So tank support showed up. Okay. So now I'm on the back of the tank. Sorry, didn't right? I got you. the phone. <laughs> yeah. So I got the phone on the back of the tank, and I'm talking to the tank crew, and I tell them I said I, just, I don't know exactly where the enemy is, but I orient, oriented them in the direction where the fire was coming from. And with their night vision capabilities, they was able to see where the enemy was at. Um, and I'm just like, hanging on to the tank phone and staying close to the tank to protect myself. But I forgot we did a tank integration training, and there's an exhaust on the back of the tank that would burn the crap out of you, and it burned the crap out of you. So 
but I stayed close to the tank. I'm not, I just took it, I just sucked it up. And before I knew it, the tank had already fired around and it dazed me. You know, you real close to the tank and the round goes off, it dazed me. And then before I knew it, the second round goes off and my senses are all off. My ears are ringing. Uh, I had snot coming out of my nose and my vision had went out. It was like everything was just black. So I just made sure I'm a, I kept positive contact with the tank. And when I gathered all my senses and stuff again, I was standing over uh, Anderson's body. And we picked up all his gear and everything and got him to the casual connection point. And I went in and dialed up a medevac and um, some, um, I don't know if it's tracks or um, one of the ATV vehicles came and picked him up and uh, got him out of there. I think the hardest part of that entire engagement was that it was really real for us because our platoon personally hadn't lost anybody. But now we went from having, hadn't lost anybody. So now we got three, three guys gone and having to swallow my own pain and the things that I was experiencing and get everybody minds back right and get them back into the fight. Um, I mean, you realize Anderson is obviously gone at this point in time uh, when you get yes, it. Uh, what does your mind do at that moment uh, when you first see him? Uh, it was a what the fuck moment, man. It was like, that was it. It didn't have any words. It was just like, just fuck. Well, I mean, I know, I know, I know your fellow Marina told you, I think, I think Anderson's dead. Like, were you not believing it until you actually saw him? Right, right. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't believing that I actually saw him. I know, I know I heard that, but I was like, nah, we're going to go out there and get him to make sure first. Is there any part of you um, that maybe feels like you didn't do enough to get to him quicker? Or I used to, I used to, I used to struggle with that, man. Okay. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily say it was a survivor's guilt thing. I don't, I don't really have a title for it, man. Uh, but I struggled with that a lot. I did, and I went through some extensive therapy finally um, in two thousand. 2014 to 2017 because um, I had sucked it up for as long as I could and I found myself unraveling and close to even hurting myself uh, again. And I had to go through that. And, you know, God's plan is God's plan. You know, um, the enemy got lucky that day. It, it wasn't that I didn't do enough or I couldn't run any faster than I was running. I couldn't do anything different than I was doing. I did the best that I could. I was the best version of myself at that time. But it took me a long time to come to grips with that. Yeah, uh, and I don't know if it's survivor's guilt. It's as as simple to say, through our training, for better or worse, we are led to believe we can overcome anything. We are led to believe that we have more control than the enemy. We understand the yeah. enemy gets a say, but our training tells us if we do X, Y, and Z, if we do A, B, and C, we take the initiative back. Uh, and when that doesn't play out, we are left with more questions than answers. Uh, oh. And ultimately, we, 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 through all training, we are compelled to evaluate our performance. But when we evaluate our performance and we still have a lost life at the end of it, um, we are in a unfamiliar, uncomfortable spot, and and 
If you want, if psychiatrists want to label that survivor's guilt, that's fine. I think it's a little bit more complex than that. I, I it's a little right. bit more ingrained than that. Um, and and to a certain extent, we will never um, be able to reconcile the simple idea that we 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 never said I did all I can do and that's it. Because if if we say, if if that was the case, we honestly believe everybody would have come back, right? right. There's there's not a scenario right. out there where you can concoct. For anybody who's trained for any considerable amount of time that goes, okay, yeah, we're going to go into this. We're going to, they, they have an edge in us. We're going to lose. No, we, that's just not the way we think. It's not the way we're yeah. trained to think. And so that is the struggle. Um, and, and, I mean, look, it's a deeper, longer conversation. But that is the struggle um, that I think you're dealing with. Correct me if I'm wrong. I just, you know. Uh, well, you, you're right. You're right. You know, um, now I just have some things in place that, that give me a little peace. You know, um, God's plan to me is not a cop-out. You know, it's one of those things that when I can't understand and I give myself a little grace and compassion, then if there still isn't any understanding, that's what I go to. There's some things not meant for me to understand, and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you were also injured on this deployment, correct? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a severe injury, man. Um, besides the, the PTSD stuff that comes from it, I had a little a hand injury. I was a shrapnel, but it was something that my docs handled at the time. And it's one of the things that, yeah, I probably could have left theater and, you know, probably got some more intense treatment, but they wasn't letting people come back into the city. So my injuries are, aren't even documented. I got a doc who pulled it out, made sure I didn't hit any ligaments, nothing, and did his little tape and gauze and just took care of it for me while we was there. All right. So you put, put, rub some dirt on it and get back in there, right? I mean, that's, that's essentially yeah. what it boils yeah. down to. Um, now, you end up with one more deployment in 2009, um, right? Correct? Yeah. All right. Before that, though, uh, in 2007, you are awarded the Silver Star for these actions. Um, when do you first hear about this? Uh, and, and obviously, again, for those who aren't following, it's upgraded to a Navy Cross. But uh, when do you first hear about the, the idea that you're going to, to, to receive an award? Well, we get rid. We 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 are done with the fight in Fallujah. Mm-hmm. We we are pulling out of the city um, shortly after Christmas. I want to say December twenty seventh, right. December twenty sixth, December twenty seventh. We're pulling out of the city, going to Al Assad, and waiting, holding there until it's time for us to come back to the states. In Al Assad, I remember having a conversation with my first son, and everybody was all proud of me and all this kind of stuff. And I told him, I said, "Man, I just did what." All of us would do it. We was in a position to do it. And I, I want you guys to let that shit go. Let's leave everything here with Fallujah. Leave it here. I don't want to take it back with us. I just want to go back and just get back to the regular Marine Corps. So we come back to the States February 1st, 2005. And um, I finally start taking care of myself. I finally get ready to have the ankle surgery. I had some uh, PRK surgery. Um, and I got histed for recruiting. Histed is just like a list where you haven't done a special duty, they come get you to do a special duty. So I got histed for recruiting, but I didn't want to do recruiting. I wanted to, I wanted to go back on deployment. I wanted to go back on deployment. When we came back, I was hate filled, bro. I was I had so much hatred and rage, and I was like, no, nah, I want to go back to. Iraq. I want to deploy with them when they go back. My first one was like, you've been in Bravo Company 1-8 for six years. That's unheard of. 
but six years, same battalion, same platoon, same company. Uh, only thing changed was different barracks. But other than that, I was in the same position for six years. And I told first one, I was like, man, I understand you've always looked at look look after me like like you're my father or whatever. But uh, I want to go back to Iraq. I'm gonna deploy back with the company. He said, okay, well, I'm not a first one for nothing. Then I got the recruiting thing comes by. I'm like, man, first, I don't want to be a recruiter. He said, well, no, I was trying to get you to go and do your career and make the best out of it, but you told me no. So now tell the Marine Corps what you're going to do, what you're not going to do. I'm like, first off, man, please hit me. I do not want to be a recruiter. And he was like, the only way that you can get out of being a recruiter is if you got an SDA package already submitted. I was like, man, he said, what you going to be a drill instructor? I said, I don't want to do that. I hate those guys, too. He's like, well, I guess you're going to be a recruiter. <laughs> no, 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 first one, first one, I, I, I'll, be, I'll be a drill instructor. He reaches his desk. He already has financial checklist and everything filled out for me. I want to go take it to Stats on Laurent, and I was I had orders to go to MCRD Paris Island, South Carolina, uh, for April 4th, 2006. There you go. Yeah. Um, so I was a drill instructor. Yeah, so I was a drill instructor when I got that award. Um, I hadn't heard anything about it being a silver star or anything like that until I got on Paris Island. And that's because when I was in drill instructor school, when you get ready to graduate, they ask you, hey, for your graduation, who's going to come out? You got any colonels and generals, sergeants, majors, anything like that? Um, anybody expecting any awards uh, or anything like that? And I didn't say anything. And my squad instructor at the time, told them that, hey, he, this guy may be getting uh, a silver star. I'm looking around like, not me. I shouldn't be getting anything because I already talked to my company about leaving this crap alone. But um, So a silver star never actually came to me. It came down, I think Sergeant Major Kent was Sergeant well, Angus, I think. Sergeant Major Kent was Sergeant Major Marine Corps at the time. He had whomever sent it back up as uh, a Navy Cross. So my second cycle, drill, my second platoon as a drill instructor, uh, the depot commander comes onto my squad bay. And I got 10 recruits on the quarter day, and I'm trying to snatch their freaking souls out of their lives. Because <laughs> these kids, these kids, it was personal. It was really personal. It was, uh, I had my watch on. It was just a whole bunch of stuff that I was getting in trouble for that I know that I taught them really well on how to do. And just being, you know, typical recruits, I'm going to scratch my face if, if I can get away with it, uh, I'm a half ass my swab in the deck, whatever. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I had 10 of And so doing my whole IT session, wearing them out, and the depot commander comes on deck. But I'm so into this IT session, I don't even recognize it. It's the depot commander. The recruits stop. They report the deck and everything. I report the deck to him. And he says, carry on. So we're like, carry on, I sir. Good afternoon, sir. Push. I start wearing that ass out again. So he's like, stop, stop by here, sir. Good afternoon, sir. Yes, sir. He's like, Are you sure you want to be doing that while I'm on deck? I thought that he knew I had my watch calls because, you know, in second phase, crews get four minutes, 30 seconds, and four minutes. So uh, I had my hands behind my back and unpause my watch. So I'm like, oh, sir, I've got about two minutes left. And push. So I wearing him out again. He's like, Trust Trump, you, Chris, go away. Trust Trump, get inside the duty hut. So I go inside duty hut, and again, it still hasn't dawned on me, this guy has a star on his collar. 
So I go in there and I'm like, oh shit. Bring that general on the face. Hey, sir. So he said, hey, it's too late for that shit now, Sergeant. <laughs> like, uh, my, my bad, sir. Um, what, what, what can I do for you? He said, well, if you stop being a freaking maniac, I can talk to you about what I'm doing. <laughs> get us something to drink. Yes, sir. So uh, I get us some Gatorades. And uh, he said, hey, hey, have a, have a seat. Sit down. So we sat down. And he said, I want you to relax. Yes, sir. And uh, he says, um, what do you want me to give you, your neighbor cross so I don't have a neighbor cross. He uh, opens his red book. Arvin McDay says my last four. I'm like, yes, sir. He like, yeah, this is yours. You have a neighbor cross. Where do you want me to give it to you at? I, I took a pause for a minute, man, and I just had this. I relived everything. In about 30 seconds to a minute, I relived everything. And I'm like, sir, um, I don't want it. When you say relived everything, I'm sorry to cut you off. When you say relived everything, you that day, November 11th, 2004, you're you're yeah. okay. All right. Yeah. And um, you say you don't want it. it was, yeah, it wasn't just November 11th because there was a couple of houses out there as well where I had to get Marines out of that had been injured and or killed uh, out of a few houses. And but all that stuff. And all that stuff, I don't want it. And uh, he's like, I appreciate you being humble. I said, I'm not being humble. I want to be humble. I'm not being humble. I want to get on with my life. I don't want it. And uh, he said, well, hey, sorry, I'm sorry, but uh, you already have it. And went to the computer, looked up MOL at the top, NX, blue and right ribbon. So I shed my tears and stuff, man, and he and I go back and forth. Like, this is the deep hole commander. This guy has my career in the palm of his hand, and I'm sitting up here having this, this light debate with him, and so I don't want it. He's like, well, I understand you don't want it, but uh, it'd be good for the Marine Corps and all this kind of stuff if you receive it. I was like, you can give it to me right now. And he was like, so you think I'm going to give you the nation's second highest award for valor and combat in, in a somewhat squared away squad bay? Sergeant, you must be crazy. That's okay, sir. Well, if you can, uh, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And he was like, well, I don't want it to be like that. I want you to tell me what it is you want. I said, sir, well, I'm not, I'm not receiving this award if I'm not doing it in front of my Marines. And he was like, that's the deal breaker. You have to do it in front of your Marines. Yes, sir. If we can go down, we can go up to North Carolina and do it in the quad and Bravo Company, I'm good with that. He said, no, we're just going to make it happen in front of your Marines. So he sends a fleet of buses up to North Carolina and doing my second platoon graduation. All my Marines is inside of the, the all-weather training facility, and I get the award in front of my graduating platoon. Back at Camp Lejeune at 1-8. No, no. Back in uh in Paris. Okay, all right. And when you said your Marines, I wasn't sure if you're talking about the Marines from your previous. No, no, he, okay. he sent he sent some Greyhound buses up to North Carolina. Oh, to bring them to pick down. Up my battalion Got it. And bring okay. Them down. Okay, so they right. came you didn't yeah. go to them, they came to you. Okay. I, I, so I did understand down. I knew one eight was involved. I just had to figure out where. Um okay, a couple things here. Um one, in that moment when your Marines are there, do you when do you feel pride? Do you feel pride? When 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 does it come in? in that moment where you're actually like, okay, this is, this is cool. Like I'm, I'm, this makes me, this is why I became a ring kind of moment. Not like I'm proud of myself. I did something great, but there is right. just a certain level of acceptance where you get to it. Like, okay, I've earned this and I, I, I earned it for them. I earned it for everybody else. I earned it for myself, but you know, I mean, kind of take me through the emotions. I can tell you this, man. Um, I knew it was happening, but it still felt kind of weird. And I'd already talked to the depot commander. I was like, sir, I don't want to speak. I just want to come up and do whatever it is that we got to do. 
bow face, clap, 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 4.30 and go back to have a seat. He's okay, sure. Hey, sure, Sergeant, no problem. No problem. When my Marines came there, they helped me get over because I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to do it. I, I didn't know how I felt about it. Um, I think I remember at the time, I remember feeling guilty. I remember feeling weird. I felt like this was over the top. I felt like I just want this crap to die. I don't, I don't want to keep talking about delusion. Right. Um, and if I put it over my left breast, then I'm going to always have to talk about delusion. Um, but my Marines, when they came up there in typical 1-8 fashion, um, they just took over the place. And it just made me feel good. It made me feel good. It made me feel comfortable. Um, so as he addressed, as Luke, um, General LeFevre, as he addresses the audience and everything and talk to him about the history of the award and all that stuff, and he pins it on me, I'm thinking, okay, it's over with, about face, clap, 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 430. And as I'm getting ready to take my 430, now, ladies and gentlemen, a few words from Sergeant McDay. This, I know I said I didn't want to talk. <laughs> but um, so I just grabbed the mic. As a ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for coming. Uh, I accept this award on behalf of my Marines um, that we lost in. I, I accept this award on behalf of my Marines, something like that. Giving the mic back, and I just kind of just stepped off. Um, later that night, my Marines took me out, and we just pretty much tore down beautiful South Carolina. We <laughs> tore it down. Um, and I wasn't even a drinker then, but uh, I had, I don't know how many shots and how many drinks, and the Marines actually was telling me their perspective and their understanding of not even just, not even just Fallujah, but the Marine that I was for them before we even deployed to Fallujah. And they told me it's freaking badass. You better freaking wear it. You better better never take it off. So I kind of got orders from all my Marines. Hey, bro, you're doing the right thing. This this was supposed to happen. Wear it for all of us. So um, that kind of gave me some peace to that's awesome. Do it the right way. Um, any thoughts of Anderson in those moments? Nothing about Anderson every day. Yeah, every day. No, I know, but I, I'm saying. Like, I, I guess I just mean in. The moment in that moment, getting the award, thinking, you know, again, going back to the term that we coined guilt before, whatever it was that we were feeling, where you were feeling for that moment, you know, um, how hard is it to, even though your Marines gave you the blessing, how hard is it to still accept it knowing that he's gone? It was very difficult. It was very difficult. And like I said, if my Marines are out there, I don't know how I – how I go through it. But they actually like all circled around me and, you know, we all group hug and prayed about it and talked to Anderson and all kinds of stuff. And um yeah, man, I just I've always been at a loss for words when I think about it. it's not just Anderson. It's just like it's like it's like what you said. It's like did I have a shot at even get did I ever have a shot at getting him out of there alive? You know, there's still always those questions that aren't answered that we have with ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, listen, I, 100% I understand it. I, I, I asked the question just because, you know, again, um, the, the emotions of something that's supposed to be – let me rephrase. Something that is viewed by the rest of people who don't have it as an incredible honor and something amazing. Um, it becomes a responsibility to you. Uh, and 
whatever the foundation of that responsibility is, in this case, your Marines, in this case, Anderson, whatever it is, um, is one is now one thing that you have to sort of be the steward of every single day. Like, you can't just be Arby McDade anymore. You're Navy Cross recipient, Arby McDade. And that's a big freaking deal. Like, Medal of Honor recipients have told me that. You know, it's not, it's not XX did something bad. It's Medal of Honor recipient did something bad. You know, right. so there is, there is a, a certain amount of weight that comes with it. But moreover, you know, I, I would say this, and, and forgive my, because I don't have anything of note as far as awards are concerned. Um, but, you know, the award represents Anderson and all the other Marines and all the guys that you fought alongside. And, and, and you know, you have to just be sort of the flagpole on which it flies, right? That's... Yeah. That's all you are. You're, you're a conduit to their story. And you sharing your story here on this platform shares Anderson's story and the rest of your Marines. They're all wrapped up in that, that, that medal that sits right there on your chest uh, and, and, and what you've earned and, and what they all earned alongside of you. And, and I think that that's something that's special. Um, I know it's, hard for, it's harder for you to grasp that because, again, you have the responsibility of wearing it. I get to sit on the sidelines and look at you and go, great, great stuff. I understand, you know, what you're thinking and feeling. I would feel the same way if I was in your shoes, but I don't have the responsibility of it. You know, it's like everybody can, everybody can imagine what it's like to be a parent when they don't, when it's not their kid. Then when it's because right. your kid, all yeah. of a sudden the game changes, right? That's so, you know, you, you have 10 kids, you got an 11th one right now. And it, 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 unfortunately it, it carries a lot of weight for a lot of people. But, you know, again, and I say all this just because I, I, I could see in your face and I could see the emotion and, you know, um, the, the, the emotions are valid, Marbury. They are. I mean, there's, you know, um, don't, don't, don't think that they're not, but I, I want you to know that uh, I won't ever forget your story without remembering Corporal Anderson, period. Because that's part of it, right? If, if they could have given and I don't want to phrase it this way, but like, it's almost like, you know, you found an Anderson got hit, and that was the one guy you wanted to make sure was okay. You might not have gone down the alley with the same urgency. You might have had two or three other things that could have diverted your attention, but that was what drove you down there. That was what was you were going for. The cross doesn't exist on your chest without it. So I know his story now because you shared it. And I think that is the greatest gift you can give to the memory of, of Corporal Anderson. Thank you for that, bro. You know, I mean, that's, you know, that's really, you know, I, I, I just share because I, I, <laughs> I wish I could offer some other, you know, sort of way to assuage the, the feelings that come with the whole thing. And, and I've had this, again, I, I've been fortunate enough to speak with several Medal of Honor recipients, and it's the same thing. Um, you know, I, 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 I can't imagine what that, that the, the sort of weight that that bears on a, on a routine basis or on a daily basis, but... Um, don't think of weight as heavy. Think of weight as, you know, uh, um, you know, responsibility that, that is bestowed upon you. You get the honor of carrying this for you. You know, um, that, that machine gun hill, that, that Mount Suck, whatever it was called, what they were pointing out when you found it, you were 0331. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not the weight you're talking about. You know, right. this is the weight of I'm standing in front of this formation, in front of all these Marines, and they're my responsibility, and I love them. I'm going to take care of them. That right. same kind of weight, different thing. All right, good. Well, I'm... I'm Again, thank you for sharing. I, I really appreciate it. It's um, it's really, really, uh, 
it's special uh, and, and well-deserved honor and, and, you know, amazing story. That all said, um, you go back to Iraq a third time. Um, I assume that this deployment is not as eventful as the last one? Oh, yeah, not at all. Um, this deployment was actually um, confirmation for me. I got I got a little excited because I couldn't even recognize the place. And our biggest responsibility there was to uh, escort the Epert. I forget what it is, but it's they teach them how to farm and, you know, mm-hmm. um, I guess fix their soil so they can actually grow crops and stuff. Um, so we would actually go out there and just make sure they had safe travel to and from. But to, to be in the city again, you know, I was able to feel the energy of different places where I was at. But as far as being able to visually recognize it, it didn't even look the same. It didn't look the same at all. But the, the ability to be able to go back and see it actually thriving for whatever little period of time that it did thrive before it was taken over again, um, it was good to see that. Yeah, second time I got back to Iraq, I'm like, boy, this place was more of a shithole the last time I left it. It was, uh, right. <laughs> it was, it was kind of depressing to say the least. But uh, different conversation. Um, you mentioned that you had uh, ended up going to therapy um, around 2014. Now you're, you're, you know, a, a, a gunny sergeant at this point in time. You're, you're, you're 14, 15 years into your career. The world is sort of your oyster. But what's really going on behind the scenes? that nobody knows about and nobody sees. What are you thinking and feeling? Every day was a struggle, man. I, and the best way I can explain it is like, for those who haven't gone to combat, you know, like go to your favorite rock band concert, your favorite concert. And how loud it was, it's in your mind, that same volume. And it's always like that. Um, to, your whole body, my whole body felt numb. Like, you know how you sleep on your arm wrong, you got like those tingly. My whole body would feel like that every day. And the only thing that would allow me to get off of that is maybe training recruits or doing something to stay busy. And my life went from, I don't know how much sleep I was getting at first, but I know I was getting between two and four hours every day for like almost, almost 10, 12 years. And Finally, it got to the point, my wife and I at the time, we was at a uh, at a Marine Corps ball in MCRD San Diego. So I'm doing my second tour as a drill instructor again uh, in San Diego. And when they do the roll call and they ring the bell, it, I just freak out, bro. I don't understand what it is or why that, why that's a trigger for me. Uh, but I wig out. And she's like, we, we can't keep doing this shit. Like, you've been doing this for double-digit years now. You need to get some help. And my first son at the time, I was a drill instructor school instructor in San Diego. First son, Courier. He's like, man, you don't have nothing to prove nobody. He said, uh, you've taken care of the Marines. You've made Marines, Marine Corps drill instructors. You've created Marines. I'm not asking you to do anything else. I'm asking you to get some help. Drill instructor school will be fine. So um, my first therapy session was with, um, she wasn't a full therapist. I don't know what her title was at the time, but it was a uh, Lieutenant Garoppolo in the Navy. And what was supposed to be an hour ended up being three hours. And um, I took it through the whole gambit. Obviously, it was a lot more raw then because I hadn't really been telling it or not. Right. And um, she sent me through 
uh, this program called Oasis. And Oasis is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, at that time, if I had a choice between going back to Fallujah or doing therapy, I would go back to Fallujah. That's how <laughs> tense it was. And um, then after that, I did that for eight weeks, eight, nine weeks. And um, I fell in on a really good friend of mine who actually is a part of the reason I was able to finish my tour successfully in the Marine Corps. And um, Master, Master Gunner's son, Ross Blaine, he was in therapy as well and took me under his wing. And I didn't really get anything from the uh, Oasis treatment just because I believe it was too soon. But I did gain a, a friend and a big brother, him, that I, can, I was able to lean on and, and make him part of my my battle buddy group, if you will. And um, But then after I got done with that, I did the rest of my time uh, in the Marine Corps, three days a week, group therapy, uh, twice a month individual therapy. And I went to alcohol groups on Tuesday um, just because alcoholism runs parallel with PTSD. Sure. Uh, not a big drinker at all. But um, in each one of these counseling um, sessions, if you will, I got something different. You know, I got the serenity prayer from the alcohol group. You know, God grant me the serenity, set things I can't change, all that. Yeah. That gives me peace. Um, and in therapy, the fact that she was able to teach me how to focus on the facts and not the emotions. If it can't be, you can't research it or judge it by 12, then it's an emotion. And emotions are real, but they're only real to me, they're not real as it relates to the situation. So um, I got a, a good fight plan in place to hold myself accountable of working through my friction as it relates to intrusive thoughts and intrusive memories. Do you think getting the Navy Cross contributed more to it as a, we talked a little bit about, you know, until you get it in the right space mentally of having it, do, do you think that it weighed on you more and sort of pushed you into this area where your mind wasn't right? Um, no. Okay. Um, it, it, there's a few times that I forget that I have it until somebody is like all crazy with the finger pointing and stuff. Um, I, I put in a lot of work. I put in a lot of work to, to be the version of myself that I was before Fallujah. Mm-hmm. Uh, having come from my background and being successful in the Marine Corps, um, I really put a lot of work in to come to grips with this is who I am. This is who I'm going to present myself. How much of your upbringing in the dangerous hood that you lived in, in the neighborhood that you lived in, um, either played a role in helping you or sort of um, slowing down your overcoming it? Uh, Because again, like we're all products of where we grow up. Right. Um, And, and, the environment you grew up in was tough enough, and, and now you're dealing with this. Is, is there anything you draw off of, any experience you can draw off that, that helps you through it, or do you think that you know it might have hindered you in a little way? I think both. Um, I think that you know having to be as resilient as I had to be as a young, as a young person growing up, you know, dumpster diving for cans and bottles to recycle to get money for female siblings and walking three to five miles to the homeless shelters, eating food with the homeless people at, you know, seven, eight years old with my parents or, you know, living in vacant apartments and houses with no plumbing and lot, yada, 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 wash your clothes in the bathtub, all this whole kind of stuff. Um, it, it, it gave me the ability to be resilient and 
overcome situations without making myself a victim in them. But then on the flip side of it, the things I experienced at the loser are connected to the things I went through as a kid. And they all are one and the same. So they all are, you know, in my head. Yeah, I mean, like, crazy. there's there's different levels. of There's the trauma you experienced as a kid and the trauma you experienced in combat. And right. now you're unpacking both of them at the same time. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's a fight. It is a fight. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't imagine, to say the least. Um, and it's, I tell you, it sucks. You know, like, it sucks when regular life gets in the way of just trying to unfix your, un, un-F yourself from combat, right? Like mm-hmm. all, all the, the regular life stuff that you just like, ah, I don't really think about it. Or, yeah, I've moved on and everything else. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, the therapist asks you a question. Oh, well, when I was growing up, I felt like this. And then, you know, it's, yeah. and you realize all that crap's connected. You're like, damn, I'm just one yeah. big mess. I'm one big mess. I didn't want to be a mess, but I'm a mess. Um, right. Well, look, I, I mean, again, uh, I, I, it's a journey. So I don't necessarily say congratulations on it, but I, I, I say, you know, uh, you know, hats off to you for being persistent and staying with it as a hallmark of who you are and, and continuing to, to work on yourself and improve yourself to, to get where you are. It's not easy. Um, I have to remind myself constantly. I'm, I'm not on a destination. I'm on a journey, you know, that there is, there is a, uh, I'm going to have good days and bad days. And I have days where memories pop up that I can't get rid of and days that I don't think about anything. And, um, you know, it, it just is what it is. Um, I say routinely, there are some days I wish I never opened Pandora's box because I was comfortable with where the box was and uh, I never had to look in it. Um, but unfortunately, the box starts to eat away from you on the inside out. And, and uh, But once it's out there, it's sort of like it's, it's in front of you nonstop and you can't escape it. And that's, that's part of the challenge with it. But, but again, I commend you for being cognizant enough to do it. Um, took me a lot longer than it took you to actually get to that point. So... Uh, I, I'm always happy to see people taking that step. And it's a message to all the veterans, right? I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's been five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is. If you think it's there, yeah. just go, 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 go search it out and look at it and see what, what you come up with. Um, so you end up getting medically discharged. Now, you had thought at two previous points in your career you were going to get out for one reason or another. Now the Marine Corps is actually putting you out. Are you resistant to being medically discharged? At first I was. I really was. Um... I didn't have no stopping me at all, bro. Like the Marine Corps was everything I needed it to be. And then everything I wanted it to be uh, once I got indoctrinated in the Marine Corps. And for them to tell me that I can no longer serve, I had to make sure that that's where Ross Blaine comes into place. And man, the Marine Corps not just making this up. You really think you can go out there and continue you only got two years left. I get it. Do you think you go out there and, and get in front of a formation, leave them on the run three times a week, you know, be on your feet and do all them. I'm up. They see me. I'm down stuff. Do you really believe you can do that? Do you believe you can do that the way that the Marines need you to do it? And I had to have a conversation with myself. And I got pins and screws in my ankles and I got back issues. And, you know, now I'm struggling with TBI, light sensitivity and all that stuff. And, and like, bro, you did your time, man. Get out the way. This is a young man's game. Get out the way and yeah. let somebody come in that's that's better for the Marines to do it. And probably the toughest pill I had to swallow. Um, but before I swallowed it, I went out there and tried to 
running a PFT and all this kind of stuff in this jacked up ankle and it was trash. <laughs> it was trash. I could see if I get on a pull up bar, I can still get on a pull up bar yeah. and do that. But yeah. as far as the other stuff, it's like, yeah, nah, I, I can't do it. I got seven degrees of motion in my right ankle. Um so yeah, um it was it was bittersweet. And unfortunately, man, I saw another side of the military. I know I saw another side of the Marine Corps. Um, when I was actually going through my transition of getting therapy and medical treatment and stuff, I was just able to see the Marine Corps differently. Uh, not not the so? Marine Corps entirely, but just just on the West Coast. What happened? How so? Why? What would you see differently? So I'm on this. I'm on this. This struggle on this journey to try to mitigate the struggle and try to find that. Ooh, Marine Corps kill, Marine Corps lifestyle that I'm used to and trying to find a motivation. And, you know, um, the, surg- the surgeons at uh, Naval Medical Center San Diego did a, a good job, what it's worth. But for me, I wanted to get back into the fight. I don't, I don't have that. Um, so I'm addressing, addressing my concerns with them about my ankle and the pain so that I'm still feeling. I was accused of being a malingerer. I was like, the first time ever I had to really pull this card, I said, man, you better go fucking Google me. You better go fucking Google me. That's not who I am. I'm not malignant. I'm telling you, my freaking ankle well, isn't working. That was the first thought in my head. It's like, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so finally he did that, and I had to get another doctor, and the other doctor came in, and he told me, he said, I see what your issue is. You got a calcium deposit at the hinge of your ankle. And the problem with it is if we do another surgery, we can remove all of the scar tissue and the calcium but by the time you heal up, it'll be back. So um, we can try to do some ulcers. He gave me some treatment plans and stuff. It made me feel pretty good. But then I was I would go to some of the other units in Marine Corps at Pendleton. And even when I got a chance to go to uh, North Carolina to visit, it was like the Marines just, just – I'm just looking for that fight. Looking for that – I don't go down by combat. I'm going to give it 110% right now. And – with, that's when a low low reg epidemic was like all over the place. Marines don't want to get haircuts. I'm seeing fat guys in uniforms that I think it was just me. And you you know that they got a saying you go looking for some you go look for something, you'll find it. And I think I just set myself up for failure. I could have probably should just left them alone, but um it gave me what I needed to go ahead and accept orders for medical return. You know, uh it's one of those things that's simple to say is uh, they need you till they don't, right? Right, yeah. The military needs you until they don't anymore. And then I got no problem yeah. getting rid of you. It is a cold, cold business. Um, and a reality that all of us have to face. I'm going through it right now, staring retirement in yeah. the face, and you just – there's not a single ounce of you that is – we talked about training, right? Like there's not a single ounce of you that's trained just to let go and say – Right. I'm walking away. Yeah. Right. Trying to stay in the fight. And uh, it's, it's tough. It's, it's emotionally tough. It's physically tough. It's a shot to your ego. It's, it's a, uh, you know, no one wants to be told, let me rephrase that. No one, most of us in uniform never want to be told you're not good enough anymore. Um, and that's just the reality of our business. Um, yeah. Much similar to professional athletes. It's like, you know, you'll, you'll fight and fight and fight and try to stay in and, Father Time is undefeated, and the same thing goes for us, right? Father Time eventually just yeah. takes over. Father Time takes over, or, you know, the military clock takes over, and then you're done anyway. So yeah. uh, one and the same. Um, all right, so do you have any idea what you're going to do with your life? I mean, you're getting out now. 
No, man. Um, my my wife and I at the time, um, due to all the the hardships and stuff that we had to go through with the PTSD and night episodes and me just being numb and not emotionally available and all that stuff. Um, so I get out and I took some time for myself because I had been going through therapy and you know, I wanted to give us a fair shot when I got out. So I got out and moved to San Antonio, place I'd never been to before. Um, and she and I, we were, we kind of just went through the motions for about a year. And finally, it just got to the point where like this, we're not growing this way. And she and I are still really good friends. Um, I can tell her right now, hey, look, I got some smoke in Dallas. She going to pull up. Like, that's that's how she is. So, um, yeah, so we went through a divorce. Um, then I moved back to Fort Worth and kind of got my bearing about myself and started doing a little job at, at Very Desk, the the stand desk. Um, my first corporate job, at, I enjoyed Very Desk a lot. Um, did that for about 18 months, and the opportunity with Danny and Thomason just kind of just fell in my lap. Um, it was a Marine, well, still a Marine, Cliff Dean. He served like early 90s. Um, he's a COO. He and I had a conversation about, you know, the program and what it is we're trying to do. I just felt like it was a sweet spot for me. You know, um, I was actually born in California. So before we moved to Texas, I was three years old. I was in foster care. Didn't know it. My mom had told me when we got here, I was in foster care. And then growing up without a father and all that stuff, I felt like for me to be able to get back in front of them with the life that I led before the Marine Corps and all the things I endured in the Marine Corps, that I have a platform to make an impact. Um, done a few speaking engagements and stuff like that. And I'm still looking to probably, like I said, probably, I'm still looking to do more of that in the near future. But right now my focus has been how do I position myself to make Thompson Center be as impactful as it can be for these young people that come from environments, something like mine. That's amazing. And, and again, it's a, it's an incredible organization. Um, you know, they teach leadership, establish high school production cultures, um, you know, and, and, and just all those sort of, um, all those, all those sort of, you know, foundations that you, you're supposed to get from traditional family life and whatever that looks like that um, are, are, sort of falling, you know, by the wayside for one reason or another, um, to give that to them and, and, you know, uh, give them at least a foundation that isn't there, I think is, is super important. Um, and it's something I, I would venture a guess to say that had you had more of that, uh, in your youth, things might be different, no? Yeah, man, that's, that's the goal for me. I just try to be the person for them that I didn't have for myself. Right. I love football. Like, Danny Thompson, Barry Sanders, uh, Jerome Bettis, Bo Jackson, Adrian Peterson, in my top five. And you when put, I played you put football, Jerome Bettis in the same category as those other guys. Oh, you're nuts, Jerome Bettis. Look, oh, look. Nuts. When I was a kid, man, the love, bus. Love, love the, the bus. bus. I get it, but I mean, you're yeah. talking about Barry, and you're talking about yeah. AP, and you put and Jerome Bettis in there. Yeah, different times of my life. You know, ah. when I was younger, like. 10, 11, it was Barry Sanders. I was in the, in the projects juking everybody. He, he's still the best in the world. Yeah. For my money, that'll be the best running back I'll ever see, period. Oh, yeah, same here. Same yeah. here. Same here. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, man. And uh, What does he ask you? What, what does LT ask you about your service? He doesn't. Really? He doesn't. 
Yeah, LT LT is as humble on TV as he is in person. And he definitely doesn't cross any boundaries or anything like that. So when we get our opportunity to get together and let our hair down, you know, I share with him some stuff um, in casual conversation. But he has a great deal of respect for me. So I think it's just one of those things like, man, I I let it come up when it comes up. Um, I know that you said that you, uh, you know, you have a, a good relationship with your mother. You, you did so much traveling all over the world and all over the country. Um, is there a time where she starts to reinsert herself back into your everyday life? Yeah, yeah. Um, my mom actually came to live with me for a little while when um, in 2000, 2004 when I came back. Okay. She actually came out there and lived with us for a little while. Um, and and every now and again, she would come visit. Like different duty stations I've been to, she's come out and visit and hung out with us for a little bit. Um, now she's just working on her health and everything. Cause you know, I guess life, she, my mom has been a diabetic since she was a kid. Right. So diabetes right. is starting to have more of a say than it used to. So working on just trying to regulate her health and get at a sustainable level. She had a mild stroke, um, a couple of years ago. Um, although it was mild, she still has some, some impacts from her slurred speech and, um, some of her, Body mechanics is not at all. Um, I, I know you have a blended family. You have 10 kids you mentioned before. Your oldest are old enough to understand what you did and what you're about. Do they, do they know the full scope of everything? Yeah, man. So my uh, my two oldest boys, um, Trey and Tyree, they they were like my best friends. Brother. We grew up together. So all the mistakes and stuff that I made, but I apologize to them damn near every week. Hey, man, I messed it up with you guys, but y'all turned out great, and I thank you for it. <laughs> so uh, my oldest son, he runs a couple of uh, a couple of routes with FedEx, and then uh, my second oldest, he's actually in the Air Force. He's stationed in, um, in Maryland. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, look, I, you know, I, I, hope they, uh, I hope they get to watch us and listen to this and really uh, maybe – unearth some stones about that that they didn't know before. Uh, you know, it's again, it's, uh, um, I, I, one, it's amazing. They have a family that big. That's uh, mind blowing to me. Um, you know, I thought twins were tough, uh, but regardless, you know, I, I just think too, it's, you know, there's so much about what we have gone through. And, and my biggest thing with my PTSD was always, I didn't want to pass it on to my children. You yeah. know, I, I didn't want them to, to emulate behaviors that I was, that I was doing on a routine basis. And, um, obviously the more you have, the more of an effect it is, especially in wide age ranges and there's a trickle down effect. And so, you know, I wonder if you ever thought a lot about that and and the impact it was having on your kids. I did, man. My kids seen me at the worst of it. Um, they seen the nightmares, they seen, you know, the anger episodes and, um, a few times out of the year, I just, just in a dark place. Um, and my two oldest, I would say that I'm proud of them for rocking with me the way they did. You know, being at such a young age that time, you know, they were teenagers, 16, 17, whatever. Um, for them to just have my back the way they did. You know, I know there are times they probably didn't want to work out with me, but they were, hey, dad, let's go to the gym. Or, Hey dad, this this weekend, uh, let's go out to a bar or whatever. And they be designated drivers and not, you know, after they graduated high school, obviously, they take me out and 
So it's a whole bunch of things they've done that I'm thankful for. And at their level and ability to be able to have a conversation with their siblings, they did it. So um, I think they have, they got a pretty good grasp. My son's in the Air Force now, so he's in the Air Force talking about his dad to everybody. So <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, one more awesome. here. I know you said you wanted to start a nonprofit. You and a fellow Marina working on a, a nonprofit. Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, so he's a pastor in Houston, and he and I served together. We're not not in the same unit, but he's a younger Marine. But he and I are from the same uh, from Houston. He we and I connected. We was in the Marine Corps, and now he's a pastor. And well, he's been a pastor his entire life. But now he's a pastor and has his own practice um, in Houston. And he and I reconnected last year sometime and he was telling me about it. And I was telling him by the way, I was in foster care and, you know, grew up without a father. And he didn't know that I was in foster care. He knew about my dad a little bit, but he didn't know that I was in foster care. So he presented his idea to me about, hey man, nonprofit, we call it Life Changer 365. And it'll be for fatherless children and uh, children in foster care um, under ages 21. I mean, again, you know, it's just one of those things where um, you're in that that sweet spot that's personal for you, um, but so positive for others. Uh, and and I, I think that's admirable. You know, I mean, there's so many nonprofits out there. Uh, and I'm almost, part of me is almost like glad you didn't do a military nonprofit, right? Because it's such a saturated oh, right, yeah. space that you're willing yeah. to take your, your, your time, your talent and everything else and put it towards, again, something that's personal to you, um, but that helps shape your military career and, and now leveraging what you did in your career back um, to where it is, I think is is excellent. So uh, I wish you the best of luck. Keep us posted on it. Let us know when we're when we're going live, and and uh, you know certainly we'll get you back on here to talk about it when it's up and running. I just wish, thank you. I just wish there's more people, man, that actually want to take on this 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 issue. Um, it's bigger than the issue, but I don't know the word to call it. Uh, there's not many people here that really want to deal with. Uh, these wayward young people and that they're not wayward because of things they've done. They wayward because of wasn't their not choice. Being able to navigate. Yeah. Yep. They got conditions on the ground and with no guidance and you know, it kind of happens. So I don't know. Ho- hopefully, hopefully we can bring some attention to it to where other people be motivated and they won't have to reinvent the wheel. They can just follow what it is that we're building. No. And look at the end of the day, mentorship is a tenant of military service. We all have had mentors. And at a certain point, we all desire to be mentors or whether we want to be mentors or not, people will approach us. And and like your Marines told you, Hey, you were the model of the Marine that I wanted to be when, when, you know, before, before the Navy cross stuff happened, I just looked at you and said, that's, that's what I'm, you were being a mentor. And, uh, these young kids, that's all they really need. If, if, if it's not mom and dad, mom and or dad, or two moms, two dads, whatever, whatever sort of, concoction you want to put uh it's just a mentor that's going to give them the right the right the right way ahead it's that simple you know uh and it doesn't have to be any 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 more complicated than that so uh much much like uh your personality simple genuine uh effective and and certainly uh motivational so uh it's incredible look i i I love this story, brother. I do. I told you I, I fell in love with it the minute I read it uh, and knew what it was about. And, and I, I, it's great to talk to you and, and hear you tell it. Um, and, and thank you for, for being emotional and sharing your emotions, man. It's, it's never easy. Um, I, I, hope, yeah. I, I hope you rest well tonight still because of this. But, you know, um, I, it's, 
uh, it's just it's it's special to know that um, that you're willing to share that stuff with with, with the audience and with me personally. I, I appreciate it. Me too, man. It's it's actually taking on another life. You know how at first it was a silver star, then it was upgraded to Navy Cross. Now that I've crawled off out from under my rock and a lot more people know about it now. Now people are hitting me up about, man, why wasn't it a Medal of Honor? Why wasn't it this? Why wasn't it that? And I don't usually entertain that, but hopefully maybe some of those people that have those questions are watching this. I, I was born with a heart of honor. I'm not going to sit up here and take any credit for I've done this kind of training, I've, this kind of person. This is the person I want to be, but also this is the person that God made me. If my award is upgraded to a Medal of Honor, I'm going to do the same thing I'm doing right now. I'm going to try to use it the best way that I can to help a lot of us get out of our situation to be a better version of ourselves so we can enjoy this this place a lot better. Um, I don't know what that looks like. Right now, I'm just kind of following my footsteps, following God's footsteps and just trying to be impactful the best way that I can for those who need it. And what we're doing is not for everybody. You know, but um, if I can... They say, they say one person out there, I got a little bit more pride than one. If I can reach 10, fine. Um, but I'm, I'm going to try to find out who they are and reach. Perfect words to end this on. Uh, really, really appreciate you spending some time with me. Uh, it's been great to get to know you a little bit. Uh, wish you nothing but continued success. Um, and let me know where Life Changer gets gets going. Um, you know, uh, I wish, you know, hope it gets off the ground very quickly. And I know when it does, it'll be a raging success. But certainly, again, uh, Great to get to know you, and, and all I could say is, Robert McDade, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. My man, Mark. Appreciate it, brother. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.